right. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, um, Matthew, Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. Matthew 17 uh, is where we're going to look at a very familiar story. And as John mentioned, um, it is uh, Transfiguration Sunday. And transfiguration uh, is kind of a weird word. We don't really use that word outside a church, right? I mean, when's the last time you had a conversation with someone and you talk about transfiguring, right? I mean, it's just, it's a churchy word. And it's just kind of this idea of something really crazy, something really mysterious happens. It's like the strobe lights come on, fog machine is rolling. Maybe you've been to one of those churches, right? You're like, what in the world? Am I at a rock concert or I'm a church? I'm not really sure, right? But that's what's going on in the Transfiguration uh, story. It's just this, wow, stimulus overload, and people aren't really sure what to do with it. And it was such a big deal uh, for those folks who were there who witnessed it that Matthew recorded it, Mark recorded it, Luke recorded it, John did not record it, but in John 1, 1, uh, Jesus, uh, John writes about how Jesus, the light has come into the world. So three out of the four Gospels record this story. And we're going to look at this story um, as recorded by Matthew. And it's just one of those kind of crazy, strange stories. And, and if you grew up in church, um, you probably, you know, you've heard this story many, many times. And, and oftentimes, uh, this is part of the liturgical calendar uh, that uh, moves us into Lent. So you're like, oh, that's why we always read that story in the spring, is because that's part of the liturgical calendar. And for whatever reason, a bunch of uh, scholars, theologians said every year, we're going to look at this story, uh, the transfiguration, because we just think it's a really big deal. And so you've probably heard this, um, again, many, many times throughout your life. You know, this, this idea of, of light is something that I think um, we often take for granted, especially if you're younger. Uh, you probably take this idea of light for granted. Most of you probably have light in your pocket, right? You just go, you pull it out, you swipe it, you're always with a flashlight. Back in the day, uh, what we used to do is strategically put flashlights around our house. Remember this, right? In case the power went out or, ever, or anything like that. Some of you young people are like, why would you do that? Well, it's because we didn't know have a flashlight in our pocket and so um, we've just grown so accustomed to this idea of that light is with us everywhere but for most of human history light has been this idea or this concept that people just really understood as daylight and nighttime daylight and nighttime and at night really the only time that you could experience light outside uh, 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 was was around the fire right or a lamp that was as um, uh, high-tech as they ever got to cast light on something uh, back in the day for most of human history when the Sun went down people went to bed. I mean, there just wasn't much else to do because there was no light. Maybe you'd sit around the campfire for a little bit, but uh, then all of a sudden people discovered, you know, that light, and now we stay up until, my goodness, all hours of the night, and now we've got daylight savings time and, and everything else, right? And, and we just kind of uh, assume that light is, is part of the deal. And so as humans have uh, struggled to kind of capture light, nobody's really been able to uh, crack the nut of uh, creating light, actually creating light beyond a fire or a lamp. 
And so Thomas Edison, as you probably know, uh, he was the inventor of about a gazillion different things. And he wanted to crack the nut of creating light uh, just out of uh, out of an invention. And so he actually uh, spent about a decade uh, on about 3,000 different experiments trying to come up with a light bulb to invent a light bulb. And so in uh, 1879, uh, Edison finally cracked the code of the light bulb and he patented the carbon filament. It's that little element that you see in a light bulb. And then, of course, you know, light bulbs have improved time and time again. In Edison, what he discovered in the course of his research, in the course of his studies, uh, uh, in his experiments, was you needed to find something, this little filament that could burn at a really hot temperature. And so he looked at 6,000 different plant-based uh, uh, fibers uh, to, to create something to put in that light bulb. And what he discovered uh, in his day was that bamboo, that's where it was at, because bamboo could burn about 1,200 hours uh, before completely burning out. And that was the very first light bulb. And then as, uh, as, as science had it, as technology had it, uh, it got better and better and better. And then a few decades later, uh, folks came up uh, with a much more advanced light bulb. But the concept is still the same that you've got this, this really thin little slice, this filament that does the work. And what we've discovered through the advance in technology is that what that fiber or that, that element is able to do is it's able to take lots of electricity that comes through the source and heat up to such a way, to so much pressure, that it will just glow and it'll burn and go on and on and on. And that's the history of the light bulb that we take for granted so much in our lives. And I wanted to just kind of lay that out there this morning to kind of give you an image of who Jesus Christ is. That when connected to the source, the power source, he glowed, he illuminated. And that's the story that we're going to talk about this morning. Did I give you enough time to get to Matthew 17? All right, well, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for a beautiful day, for the light is shining, the sun is just coming down, God, and it, it just feels good. God, it's good to be among your people, among your faithful people. And so, Lord, as we open your word this morning and um, uh, ponder what you might have to say to us, challenge us, renew us, encourage us, strengthen us, heal us. God, give us what we need from your word today because we live in a darkened and broken world and there's so much darkness in our own lives. God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Matthew 17, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them high up a mountain by themselves. Now this area, this region where they're at, to give you a little context, this is Jesus' stomping ground. This is his hometown area. Scholars don't know exactly which mountain it was. Most think it's Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is about 8,000 feet up, so this is truly a mountain. This is really high up. 
And people oftentimes throughout uh, ancient times would go up on a mountain to hear the voice of God. They were at a juncture in their life or something was going on in their life. There was a struggle in their life. They felt like they needed to go up a mountain to, to get closer to God. And we oftentimes think about, well, that doesn't sound like a bad idea, right? Because God lives up in the clouds in the heavens, right? And we just get a little bit closer. And it's a very similar idea for the ancients as they would go up a mountain and they would go up there uh, to get silent before the Lord. In the context of this story is that throughout Jesus' life, through his uh, three years of ministry, he would be up in the north, his hometown where he lived, Nazareth, around the Sea of Galilee. We've talked about many of those stories. And then every now and then he would go south to Jerusalem. And he would go north and south and north and south. And whenever Jesus was up in the Galilee region, uh, in Nazareth, up in that area, it was a good time. It was a safe place. It was like being at home. Jesus was among his people, and uh, he was some kind of uh, carpenter or a stonemason. We're not exactly sure what he did, but he did what he did for 30 years. And then for three years, he, was, he spent time at home, but every now and then he would go to Jerusalem. And whenever he went to Jerusalem, he would always stir things up. And so whenever you read in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, about Jerusalem, you kind of want to go, uh-oh, what's going to happen, Right? And that's what Jesus, he, he just had this, he was a master of stirring the pot, right? Some of you have kids who are masters of stirring the pot. And that's what Jesus was, is he stirred the pot primarily of the religious people. And they would get so up in arms and they would get so irritated. And, and this went on for three years of ministry, north-south, north-south, north-south. And finally, at the end of three years of ministry, Jesus says to his disciples, hey, we're going south again, but this time for the last time. Jesus had been telling his disciples over and over that he was going to go into Jerusalem and that he would die. And then after he died, he would rise from the grave and the disciples didn't really get it. And so they're like, yeah, 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 Jesus, whatever. And so this is, this is the end of his life. It's the last moment before he heads south. And so Jesus is at this place in his life where there is no turning back. He's at a crossroads. And I can about imagine Jesus thinking to himself, well, this is it. Do I really want to go? Should I really go? Did God really say I need to go to Jerusalem? And so he takes his three friends and they go up the mountain to pray. And the story begins where Jesus is in discernment. Should I go, God? Are you sure you want me to go? And oftentimes we say to one another, you know, I'm just different than Jesus, right? The, the key differentiator between me and Jesus is that he was without sin and I'm a sinful person, right? We can all agree with that, right? Jesus had no sin. We are sinful people. Well, why is that? It's because Jesus was always going to the Father, seeking the Father's will. God, you want me to do that? See, most of the time when we get ourselves in trouble and we sin, it's because we're not going to the Father and seeking the Father's discernment. We're asking ourselves, what do I want from this situation? So I want to ask you this morning, how are you discerning 
the junctures in your life. This is how Jesus did it. He went to God in prayer. Verse 2. Then Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. So something happened. He changed into something different. Some, he became white. He was glowing. His clothes, his body, his everything. And it was one of these surreal moments of what is going on. And it says he, he, uh, he became as white as light. And this idea, this concept of light, it's throughout Scripture. It's this idea to remind us that God has come into the world. And as, as John read a little bit ago, uh, if you can put up Genesis 1-1, I mean, this is how Scripture begins. Genesis, well, we'll just do it from memory. Or maybe we'll look to our Bibles. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness. There we go. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I'll just leave it right there for a second. Nothing. It's dark. It's formless. It says it's void. There is no light. What's going on? God is there. God is present, hovering. Now, we typically don't have great association with the word hovering, right? Usually our kids say, Mom, don't hover, right? But I want to just remind you or encourage you this morning. If you're in a place of darkness, God is that close. He hovers even over the darkness. That's good news. Verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that it was good. Now, I wasn't there when God created the world. And I don't know exactly how God spoke it. And, you know, sometimes we think God was like, let there be light. I don't think God, that's how God did it. I don't. I, I think he just said, let there be light. And there was light. Because God could just speak things into creation. He didn't have to be all dramatic about things. Let there be light. And throughout scripture, we hear God speaking. And light shows up. We hear this word about light and God's word over and over in scripture. We're reminded that that's what God does is he speaks. He speaks to our lives. Scripture tells us in uh, Psalm 119. There we go. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This is how God speaks to us, through his word. He comes to us and said, I'm, I'm talking to you. I'm speaking to you. And oftentimes in my own prayer time in the morning, 
and I'm reading scripture and I'm praying to God, sometimes I get tired of myself talking to God. Anybody else get tired of yakking at God, complaining to God, and just kind of yammering on and on and on and on about all the stuff going on in my life? And, and sometimes I'm just reminded, stop talking and just listen. And when we, and, and this, is, this is how we listen. We just read his word. God's word is a light to our path in the midst of darkness. The Bible is like a filament, right? It's that thing that glows, that thing that speaks to us, that talks to us and, and shows us around in those places uh, where we're discerning and we're not really sure what to do or where to go. And then along comes Jesus. He's the light of the world. And I can imagine the disciples, they were there when they heard that sermon and, and John was there in John 8, 12, he says, hey, remember that time where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And so as they're watching the transfiguration, they're thinking about all these images throughout scripture. And now they've got not just scripture as the light of the world, but they've got the light personified standing right in front of them. And of course, in the moment, they didn't know what to do with it. But that's who Jesus was. He wasn't just, you know, a word, the word made flesh, but he was the light of the world. And so this light of the world is standing before them. Verse 3, just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, I love Peter um, because he is kind of the uh, guy version of Martha, right? He's the guy that always needs to be doing something, right? He can't just ever sit still. I mean, there's lights and crazy stuff going on, and, and all of a sudden, Elijah and Moses show up, and, and Peter can't just go, oh, wow, that's so neat, and sit there. He's got to get up, and Jesus, I'm going to do something, right? Do we have any Peters here today? You just cannot sit still. You're always moving, 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 right? I get Peter. Sometimes it's hard to just sit. And that's what Peter does. He's like, oh, let's do something. While he was still speaking, Peter, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. I love this. As Peter's like running around, scurrying about, wanting to do something, the, the heavens open up and God op op speaks to him. Hey, Pete. Shh. Isn't that great? Stop moving around. Stop doing stuff. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. He's got something to say. Now, when my kids were little, they would run around and they would do what little kids do, right? And I would, my, my frustration level would go up and up and up and up. And I would usually get to a breaking point where I would look at my kids and I would say, hey, listen to me, right? 
And what I'm saying to my kids in that moment is not just hear my words, but obey what I'm saying, right? A parent doesn't say to their child, listen to me, and just kind of want to you know, pontificate about something. They are asking their child to do something. They're asking them to be obedient. And so when God says to the people on that day, that handful of people up the mountain, listen to Jesus, he's not just saying hear Jesus, he's saying listen. Listen to him, understand him, and obey him. And this is where the rubber hits the road in our Christian lives, right? Because so oftentimes in our Christian discipleship journey, we hear our own voice. We want to do what we want to do. In fact, our American culture spends billions of dollars every year trying to communicate, hey, you just do you. Whatever feels good, you do you, I'm going to do me, they're going to do them. See, that's what our culture says, and honestly, that feels really good, and that's what we want to do, right? I think one of the greatest idols of our day is our feelings. How does it make me feel? And God says, listen to him. I mean, how do you think Jesus felt? He's getting ready to go to Jerusalem. You know what awaits him in Jerusalem? Arrest, torture, crucifixion. I mean, the guillotine was not invented till you know, about 150 years ago. This, was, this would be slow and brutal. Jesus, he, no way. Of course he didn't want to go to Jerusalem. How did Jesus feel? Doesn't matter. God says, I want you to go to Jerusalem. This is why I put you on the planet. So I want to ask you this morning, how are you doing with your obedience and listening to Jesus in your relationships with your money, forgiveness? The list goes on and on, right? I mean, we can talk all day long about how we feel but God says, comes to us and says, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Listen to my word. I think that's the hard part for us, right? You know, you, what, in the word sin, S-I-N, what's in the middle? I, right? I'm right in the middle of my sin. It's about my will. The difference between Jesus and you and me is that he was listening to the will of God, and we oftentimes listen to our own will and what we feel like we want to do and to experience. Listen to him. Verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell down to the ground terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So they come down the mountain and they go to Jerusalem and everything happens just as Jesus said it would. He's arrested, he's tortured, and he hangs on a cross to die. And everyone in that moment was absolutely convinced that the filament was broken. That the light of the world that Jesus claimed to be was gone. It could not be repaired. 
And they were crushed. And they're like, what about the light? But three days later, Mary and Mary were going to the tomb to properly prepare Jesus' body for, for burial. You notice when they buried him on Friday afternoon, uh, they were rushed, right? They had to get it done fast. And it was a couple guys, right, who were just kind of doing a rush job on Jesus' body to just get it in the tomb. But Mary and Mary, they were coming to do what women oftentimes do is come and clean up the mess. And they were coming to clean up Jesus' body and prepare him for the final burial of his life. And when they show up, let's read it in Matthew 2, uh, 28. They show up. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back and a stone sat on it. Verse 3. No, verse... Well, I'm going to just have to go to the Bible then. Sorry, Debbie. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white is snow. Isn't that great? Same image from the transfiguration. White as lightning. He's bright. His clothes are white as snow. See, the light hadn't gone out, right? The light had come back into the world to remain with them, to remain with us for always and all time. And so over the past 2,000 years, people have experienced this light and their lives have been transformed. And in the early days of the church, um, they would go to the tomb of Jesus. Now, today, we don't actually know where the tomb of Jesus is. If you've ever been to Israel, there's a place called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Some would say that's where the tomb of Jesus was. Uh, there's some other tombs outside of Jerusalem that people would say, nope, that's where the tomb of Jesus was. Um, but we really don't know exactly for sure where the tomb of Jesus was in that place. But the early church, they knew where the tomb of Jesus was. Because Mary and Mary went there. Many people uh, saw uh, the actual tomb of Jesus. And so in the early church, what they would do, uh, what they did is they took a candle. And they placed this candle inside the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who gave Jesus this tomb to kind of borrow. And this candle, uh, the early church leaders kept this candle lit always in, in perpetuity uh, so that it would just keep burning and burning and burning. And people would go to the tomb of Jesus and they would go in there and look at this candle and be reminded that the light of the world is still shining, that Jesus is not there. And then at evening time, oftentimes when they were getting ready to have a worship service, one of the church leaders, one of the elders would go down to the tomb and they would bring a candle with them or a lamp and they would go into the tomb where Jesus lay, where the candle was burning. They would light the candle and then they would bring it up to wherever they were worshiping and that would be the light for them uh, to celebrate. I mean, how cool would that be? Um, Tom, where, where's Tom? Tom, how did we light the candles this morning? With a lighter. With a lighter. Pretty unexciting, Tom. <laughs> 
Can you imagine going to a worship service, showing up, and the candle on the altar came from the very tomb where Jesus' body lay as a reminder that the light is still shining? I mean, who wants to go to that worship service? Wouldn't that be awesome? Man, I love that imagery. That's how the early church worshipped, and they continued to celebrate over and over and over. The light has come. In fact, you maybe know this, the oldest hymn uh, in the church. It's called the Phos Hilaron. Anybody know that hymn? It's in Greek, right? Hail, glorious light. The oldest hymn of the church. Hail, glorious light. This idea that the light is shining in the darkness. So that's the light that has come to you and to me that God invites us to experience. But we don't just leave it there because we've got work to do. Do you have 2 Corinthians in there, Debbie? This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts and give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So as we said, this is the first light of the world. Scripture, right? Then along came Jesus and he became the personified light of the world. And then Paul reminds us that that same light has been placed in us. Jesus even said it in Matthew 5 in his most famous sermon. He said, you are the light of the world. See, here's the great responsibility and the challenge for us this morning. If the world is to experience the light of Jesus Christ, it's up to you and me. Right? That light isn't just going to show up. This is what God has done. This is his plan. Is he, he's called us as the church to be bearers of that light. Much like how the early church would take the candle from the empty tomb and carry it to their worship service and place it in the middle and proclaim the light of Jesus Christ. That's our job. That's our job is to bring the light of Christ into our schools, into our workplace, into our grocery stores, into our families, into our own lives. What an extraordinary responsibility that is, right? See, the world's not going to see the light if we don't carry the light of Jesus Christ and show them that that responsibility is on us to bring the light of Jesus to the world. And so for the next 40 days during the season of Lent, we're going to talk about what does it mean to be the light in the world, to allow the light of Jesus shine brightly in our lives, to be the filament in the world. We're going to gather together in small groups. We're going to read a devotional together. We're going to talk about it each week here in Sunday morning worship. But what does it mean to be the light? Because the world needs the light. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are indeed the light of the world. God, there's a lot of darkness out there, but there's plenty of darkness. 
in our own lives. And so God, teach us again what it means to experience you in your light through your word, through gathering together in community, through prayer, conversation with you, in the ways, God, in which you have called us to be servants in the world. Renew us, transform us, and heal us through the power of your light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.